I'm Raymond. And I'm Zara, and we're from the Multifaith Chaplaincy at Bates College. The Multifaith Chaplaincy warmly and creatively nurtures the religious, spiritual, secular, and searching communities at Bates College to encourage students to live into fullness and build deeper connections. We value curiosity and create spaces for conversation, contemplation, and connection. We've named our podcast Buen Camino, or Good Journey in Spanish, because we'll be talking to people from the Bates community about their personal stories, the paths they've taken, and where they've found meaning along the way. Our guest today is Professor of Religious Studies, Cynthia Baker. Professor Baker sat down with multi-faith fellows Lila Patinkin and Mara Stolzenbach to discuss her years as a preschool teacher, foraging for wild mushrooms, and being called by the big questions that need to be asked. Okay. Well, Cynthia, thank you so much for being here, for committing this hour of your time to talk with us. Um, We're very excited to get to know you a little bit more and uh, pick your brain on things religious and things outside of that realm. So um, I'm Lila Patinkin. I am a senior here at Bates College. I'm Mara Solzenbach. Nice to meet you. We're both multi-faith fellows, and uh, I'm also a senior, and we're so happy to be doing this. Yeah, great. So let's get started. So Cynthia, can you talk to us a little bit about where home for you was and what your family was like when you were growing up? Just a little introduction. Okay, well, thank you for inviting me. I'm pleased to be here. Um, Home for me was my family. Uh, and that's in part because my father was in the Navy and we we moved around a lot when I was a child. So we mo- lived in northern and southern California, uh, Colorado, the Midwest, all a couple of places in New England, lots and lots of moves when I was a kid. So um, my family really, we we became a home for each other that was very portable. So I have a fairly expansive sense of uh, home. And also very, you know, uh, compact and and uh, person-centered sense of home. In fact, much of my family lives in Maine, and we moved here in the 70s. It was my father's, uh, the Brunswick Naval Air Station was my father's last, last posting. And he spent the last part of his Navy career as a drug and alcohol and race relations counselor in Brunswick, Maine. And so my family settled here. And my parents still live in Brunswick. I have a couple of sisters in Brunswick, another one up by Augusta. And I myself live in the Midcoast area about an hour from here. So what was my family like? Uh, big, noisy, energetic, generally well-adjusted and happy, a functional family. And it still is. We all, are, all have always been on speaking terms with each other, have never not had that. My parents just celebrated 60 years of marriage. Wow. I'm, yeah, so um, very close, supportive, very privileged to have come from such a great family. <laughs> yeah, that's my home and family in a nutshell. Well, yeah, I mean, that's such a pleasure to have that community. So wanted to ask you, do you feel like who you are today is similar to who you were in high school or in college? Yeah. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So I, I find very much so. So I'm the oldest sister of the family. I have a brother who's um, a little older than I am. And I so I find myself, you know, still doing those big sister things. And sometimes that's good because sometimes big sister is, you know, caretaking. I relate. (laughs) But sometimes big sister is like not the not the right dynamic. So I'm still, you know, 
doing the the pros and cons of the big sister thing. I'm still in high school. I was very much a sort of counterculturalist, and I still find myself pushing against culture much more so as time goes on. Um, and I don't, you know, part of that's me, but part of that's the culture um, that I think really calls for being pushed against, um, being resisted in some of its more challenging and troubling uh, manifestations. So back in high school and college, that was part of who I understood myself to be and how I lived in the world. And that's still the case. I just loved being out in uh, the natural world. And that's still very grounding and very important to me. So yeah, in many, many respects, uh, I was fascinated and driven by big questions and and learning new things back then. And luckily, as I get to be an old lady, I'm, <laughs> I'm still, you know, constantly mm-hmm. uh, intrigued and fascinated and, and uh, you know, finding myself really excited when I learn new things or, or find myself wondering about something I never wondered about before. So, yeah, that, that, that sense of wonder and, and delight is still very much alive and well. Could we ask you, like, where you went to college and off of that, what the transition from high school to college was like for you? If there are any, you know, significant changes in your thinking or what it was like to enter that new space? Yeah, thanks. So I went to Wesleyan University and the transition, and it was a great place to go to school. My family was living in Brunswick. I did not even consider Bowdoin College um, just because I, I wanted to have some distance from home, but I did stay in New England. And so that, you know, that helped the transition to college that I was some distance but not a great distance. Um, again, because my family was close, I remember. I remember taking the bus home that first Thanksgiving, and when it, you know, the bus came into Brunswick, I can remember being just so excited to be home after the first few months. That said, uh, college was a really wonderful experience, and the transition to college was, as I remember it, and I might be suppressing the uh, the hard parts, but I remember what I most remember is the real sense of of a kind of empowerment, a kind of you know being able to per- to pursue the questions I was interested in, things that weren't part of the high school right. curriculum or that were part of you know to sort of build on on that prior stuff, but also to dig into things that just weren't part of it. I was accustomed to living with a lot of people around. I come from a big family. So I thought, oh, you know, I'm not going to ask for an, in, a, a private room. Wesleyan did have private room for, for first year students. Um, I'll, I'll do the whole roommate thing. And that was a that was a bit of a source of tension. My uh, my college roommate, uh, I think the people who plan these things, thought it would be really amusing to put a girl from northern New England with a girl from southern California. And we were like oil and water. She, I stayed up late uh, into the night playing cards with the guys across the hall. She had to be up at 4 a.m. every morning because she was coxswain for the crew team. (laughs) So, you know, in every way possible, we were, we were not well matched. Well, thinking about Wesleyan as like a liberal arts institution and the kinds of avenues you were talking about, like you get to ask those big questions. Um, Where did you end up 
in your studies? Um, how did those, how did your studies sort of relate to those big questions? Well, so for one of the things, one of the things you couldn't study in high school was religion. Mm -hmm. And um, I've always been fascinated by religion in part because it asks those big questions. It creates these narratives of, you know, meaning, large sense of meaning. And so I, I kind of always knew that I'd end up being a religion major. And in fact, I was. But I was determined to, you know, really explore the curriculum widely, although I do have to confess I didn't do science and math so much. Mm -hmm. uh, but humanities and social sciences. I, so I, you know, took anthropology. I took sociology. I took economics. I did uh, some stuff in theater and, and dance and uh, went abroad twice. Um, and I think that was a that's a real strength of a liberal yeah. arts you know Where did the you liberal end up arts model. I actually went to Jerusalem twice. Huh. So I went the first time I went to Jerusalem. Wesleyan had its own abroad program in Jerusalem, and I I actually went the spring of my sophomore year, which is really unusual. Yeah. And it was you know eye opening. It was transformative. It was you know really. Uh, an incredible experience. And I came back feeling like, okay, I, I need more. I, I, I need more time. I need more uh, right. space to do, uh, to think about things and to, to work with um, some scholars and to, to take advantage of this opportunity. So I came back the fall of my junior year and put together a proposal for three independent studies back in Jerusalem. And the school approved it. They funded it. And I went back. Uh, for a second time, I was actually there when when the Israeli army went into Lebanon, mm. and as I said, my father was in the navy, but you know we we weren't a quote unquote military family, and right. you know in that sort of ideological sense. And I um, one of the things I had an opportunity to do was to interview people coming back and forth across the border, soldiers and. Uh, refugees and women coming into Israel over the border from Lebanon to give birth and then return back mm. across the border. So I was interviewing all these people and it was a profoundly eye-opening experience in every case. But in one case in particular, I remember interviewing a soldier who told me when, when I called up for military duty, I put on my uniform and I go do what I'm committed to do what I'm called upon to do. And then as soon as I'm done doing my service, I come back, I take off my uniform or keep my uniform on, and I join the Peace Now demonstrations against this war. Right, <laughs> and just yeah. that that sort of helped break down this sense of, of right. either you're for war or you're for peace, either you're a combatant or you're a peacenik, mm -hmm. right? And this was in the 80s. And just wrapping my mind around that, mm. I will go to war and I will come yeah, back and protest, protest the very it, yeah. war. Yeah. So when you have all these like really intense experiences as an undergraduate student and then four years are over and, you know, all of a sudden you're back in Connecticut or maybe Maine or, or wherever. What do you decide to do at that point in your life? Well, I kind of knew that I, I again, I'm a religion geek, so <laughs> I kind of knew that. 
you know, the major in religious studies at Wesleyan, they call it religion, uh, that the, the major in religion wasn't quite enough, you know, mm. just like Jerusalem once one, one time wasn't enough. Yeah. Um, so I knew I would be going to graduate school at some point, but I also felt like, okay, I need a breather. I'm exhausted. I'm, I want to give myself some space. I don't want to be applying to graduate programs during my senior year of college. I want to enjoy it. I, I want to take the time. So, and uh, the year that I took off between college and doing a master's uh, at Harvard Divinity School, I worked as a preschool teacher in a mental hospital in Connecticut. And I had been a preschool teacher on and off as a summer job. Um, and uh, again, big sister skills, right? So what I ended up doing that first year after graduating was being a full-time preschool teacher and then went to graduate school Part of how I paid for graduate school at Harvard was to work on the side as a preschool teacher. <laughs> and when I graduated from uh, Harvard with my master's two years later, I worked for three years as a preschool teacher uh, and then went back for my Ph.D. and have been uh, teaching a different age since then. Yeah. Are there I mean, Maybe I'm saying this a little facetiously, but like, do you see any carryover between preschoolers and graduate students? I always warn my students, don't ask the question unless you want to hear an answer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, it's it's the when it's good, it's so good. And, you know, the joy of learning new things and the pursuit of exciting having the world open up for you and being a part of that with with people of any age probably the most the clearest connection between the two would be helping to shape and share in that pursuit of new discoveries. Definitely. Um, if I could just backtrack a little bit. So I also, um, I'm studying religion, but I also participate in the arts and theater and dance. And so I'm curious about how you found the crossover between your time at Wesleyan doing dance and doing theater and studying religion and philosophy and studying abroad and how maybe you even carried that over into teaching preschool or teaching college. Where do you find the intersection between your participation in the arts and your passion for the study of religion? That's a great question. So one of the things that fascinates me about religion, um, even though it's not one of my specialties, is ritual, which it's very theatrical. It might involve incense and smells. It might involve a whole gestural vocabulary of movement. Uh, costumes, right? Religious costumes are often part of ritual. So, that, so the theatricality of various forms of religious practice is one of the places where the intersections are are striking. Another is um, the the best theater. The theater that I find most compelling is theater that, on some level, really asks big questions or or that explores larger human dynamics, even if it's in uh, the lives and interactions of, you know, an intimate pair of characters or, a, you know, a single character. So that there's that as well. Uh, so those are those are two of the ways. And also religion. Oftentimes when people think of religion, they think of sort of like a very sort of internal or even almost cerebral enterprise. And again, what's most compelling to me in various religious practices are the way that they are embodied. 
And this is this is through food practices. So I teach a course on food and the sacred. This is through, again, those gestural vocabularies and rituals, through practices, you know, that engage the senses. And again, theater at its best is that sort of multi-sensory embodied experience mm-hmm. that is really an opportunity for um, a kind of deep integration of mind and body. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that people are drawn to religion and drawn to theater and dance and performance for a lot of the same reasons. I think you articulated that very well. So I have a question about um, callings and vocations, which I know is a, a big buzzword for you. So have you ever felt like you you have a calling or a passion in life? And if so, how did you find it? Where did you find it? So calling from voca- or vocation from the Latin vocare, uh, feeling called. I don't have that experience of feeling called in the sense in which that term is generally used, but in terms of really recognizing in myself what gives me joy or what gives me pleasure or what what I feel called to do in terms of what kinds of substantive contributions can I make to to a larger society, to a larger enterprise that also nourish me personally, um, I guess is how I... I experience that calledness or callingness. And for me, it really is a matter of, again, I I, I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but asking big questions. I really feel called to ongoing learning, right? Um, So... I'm not one of the, I'm obviously, I'm still in school, right? I'm not one of those people for whom it's like, okay, I did my time and now I can join the real world. For me, that real world is the opportunity to keep asking, to keep grappling, to keep seeking, to keep exploring and to do so, you know, to look for other perspectives on some of the same questions and for new questions and to engage dialogue partners, students, colleagues, a larger society in asking what feel to me like vital, compelling questions that need to be asked and that and that need to be asked even more than they need to be answered. So, uh, you know, that project, that enterprise, that way of being in the world draws me, uh, calls me, nourishes me. And so I think I found the right place to be. Yeah. Thank you for that answer. That was a beautiful answer to that question. I think that leads us nicely into a more specific question about some of the work that you've done. So your book, Jew, looks into the origins and meanings and evolution of the term Jew in a very broad historical, sociological context. So um, we're curious to hear about how you became interested in this specific topic and how your own identity might be relevant to the project that you undertook in writing this book. Thank you. So somebody actually asked me this at dinner last night. I, we, I was out to dinner with a, a job candidate and, and I said, oh, I'm going to be asked this question uh, again. I, I better give it some thought. <laughs> so I think this really goes back to those big questions. I mean, what one of them being, you know, what is the meaning of being human? Um, how ought one be in the world and why? And 
another piece that we haven't really talked about, part of what I have spent much of my career pursuing, falls under the category of feminism. So I spent a lot of my early career really digging into what does it mean to be a woman? Who gets to decide what that means? Do I get to decide? The categories applied to me. Do I get to decide what the content of that category is? So I came up in the 70s and 80s and that feminist era. And so these questions really were being asked broadly and widely by a, a really um, exciting and engaging community. So my first book was actually about about Jew and woman, um, with m perhaps more of a center of gravity on women, in a sense, the category woman, in a sense. So I was looking around at what I was doing, and I was realizing I'm, I'm asking some of those same questions about Jew. Do I get to decide the content of that term for myself? You know, who determines? You know, there's a whole discourse of who is a Jew. It's different in Israel versus the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so the, just like just like woman, but differently, Jew becomes this category that does substantial work in the world, right? It does work for people who identify as Jews. It does work for emerging Christianity. And a lot of my own work studies the origins of Christianity and, um, and the ori origins of what has become Judaism. So that's very much of a, a sort of dialogical process in a sense. So I, I came to it from this fascination with how categories, how we divide people up into categories, how we identify ourselves and how much of that we actually get to decide for ourselves and how much is determined by others or how we make our decisions about what this category means to me, how it describes me or doesn't describe me in a world in which there are already at play so many contending definitions, so much work being done by these categories. Some of the work that the categories do in terms of, you know, we are who we are because we are not that. And so Jew turns out to be one of those categories, right? As does woman, right? Men are men because they're not that. They're not weak. They're not submissive. They're not, right? All of these things that are attributed to women and femininity, Christian culture and the Christian culture deeply embedded in the West uh, or the deep foundations of the West of what we call Western culture are we are this because we are not that and the that is the Jew, right? So what does it mean to, to take ownership of or to call oneself by a name which is inherently a name for the other, mm. whether that other is woman or Jew? you know, or black or, you know, take your pick. Yeah. And I think with that idea of like the category of Jew or the word Jew doing work in the world, it's so urgent and it's it's still everywhere. And just with the recent example of President Trump signed this executive order dictating that Title VI of the Civil Rights Act could be used to combat anti-Semitism. And it's sort of sparked this complex and, you know, heated debate about Jewish identity and the history of anti-Semitism um, and anti-Semitic tropes portraying Jews uh, as a separate race, nationality, or perpetual like foreigners within their own nation, so to speak. And given you know what you talked about in your book or just your your scholarship in general, uh, what's your your take on this example? So this is. Uh, 
this is same same stuff, different day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> right. In a sense, um, so, and as you said, as you observed, it's it's Jew doing work in the world, and it, it, so in my book, I uh, one of the chapters really looks at the way in which Jew. Uh, really becomes a very potent lens on this whole religion versus ethnicity. These are these categories describe, describing the same thing, different things. How do they intersect? What's and Jew provides a really powerful lens and analytical base for exploring those again sociological, but I would I argue also theological categories mm-hmm. of ethnicity versus religion. So on one hand, stepping back, it's like, oh, here's another iteration of this same kind of dynamic that goes on and has been going on through Western history. On the other hand, I think that this particular move, this particular gesture by this particular administration is profoundly cynical and deeply problematic. And here's why. Because the way in which Jew is being harnessed to do work in the world now, the work it's doing the work that this Title VI uh, civil rights move is what it's doing is reinforcing a religiously infused, racialized, ethno-nationalist project, which is going on all over the world now. So here's our president now in uh, with Narendra Modi in in India, right? And it's it's India for the Hindus. It's the AFD in Germany. It's Germany for the Germans. And these ethno-nationalist regimes love Israel and love Jews as nation because it lends, they, they understand it to lend a kind of legitimacy and authorization to a religiously infused, racialized, ethno-nationalist project, which I think is profoundly dangerous. And, and we know it's profoundly dangerous because religiously infused ethno-nationalism almost wiped out all the Jews of Europe right. in the last century. Right. So can a sustainable, constructive response to the dangers, the devastating dangers of religious, racialized, ethno-nationalism really be religiously infused, racialized, ethno-nationalism? I mean, we understand historically why the founding of the state of Israel felt like a, a, a response to the devastation um, and to the precarity of uh, Jewish persons throughout the world and throughout Europe. But it's a really questionable endeavor to me to solve a complicated and, you know, a complicated problem and danger of human society by reiterating it in, a, in what you argue is another form. But I think the evidence is really stacking yeah. up to suggest otherwise. Yeah, I think on another layer, too, like, I mean, I was thinking about what you, how you were talking about categorizations of woman or of Jew. And I was remembering to in high school, I went to Jewish day school my whole life for K through eight and through high school. And in ninth grade, I had a Jewish history teacher open up in the first class and write, you know, two different categories on the board, which were American Jew and Jewish American. And she like made us choose in front of the whole class, like which one to identify with. And I think even with this, you know, recent action by the Trump administration, it sort of like reinforces this tension between assimilating completely and being Americanized, so to speak, or, uh, you know, 
Yeah. So the, the Jewish context uh, in America or the American context mm-hmm. um, uh, in Jewish history is is unique. Yeah. It is this interesting um, historical situation by which Jews are other, you know, and continue to be right. The uh, attacks on synagogues of recent years and, and months, um, you know, and the manifestos published by those uh, mass murderers use this language of othering Jews and Jews are not part of our white race or our America or my people or whatever. And at the same time, so much of what we know to be America, what we call American culture, has been deeply fed by Jews in performing arts and um, various sorts of doing all all manner of cultural work throughout U.S. history. So I don't find the language of assimilation necessarily all that um, fruitful or helpful, right? Yeah, and because yeah. that, it's often, it's like, are you assimilated or are you resisting assimilation? Yeah, I mean, it gets really murky yeah, after a exactly. while. It's sort exactly. of like an obsolete way of talking about your Jewish identity almost, or at least in my opinion. Just to sort of pivot a little bit, a lot of research recently so- shows that young people are looking uh, to their work as a source of meaning. Is that like where you see your students deriving their most meaning, like in their academic work or maybe in where they carry on after school? Or do you think we should pre- be preparing students to find meaning, I guess, in places that aren't just in the the workforce or something like that? Yeah, So I'm a huge fan of Bates' purposeful work and um, many of my courses, uh, if not most of them, are purposeful work infused courses Um, in a religious studies classroom where, you know, we're always licensed to talk about meaning, deeper meaning and so forth in a way that perhaps other disciplines don't feel the same kind of permission to bring these kinds of conversations into the classroom. We're, We're ready made for it. Doing meaningful work is vitally important. What makes that work meaningful? That's, an, again, something to continue grappling with, something to continue asking. It's not, there's not a one size fits all. It's not a simple, straightforward thing. I challenge my students to think about their life's work. Mm-hmm. And if you use that phrase, life's work, what's your life's work? There are different occupations you can choose to carry out that life's work, right? And it's and your life's work is not the same thing as the sum total of your working life, right? So I'll, I'll give you an example of the ways in which I invite my students to think about meaning and work in the way that you've posed the question. I give my students an essay by Audre Lorde, a classic essay called Uses of the Erotic, The Erotic is Power, where she talks about uh, the power of passion, of love, the power of joy, of bringing those kinds of emotions and desires for deep connection and for creativity and for building something that's meaningful to whatever one does and to do so playfully, right? So if we, if, if our language is only about work or working life or working world, then we need to make space for that sense of play, that sense of community building, which should include one's workspace, but is so much larger than that. So community building, joy, playfulness, passion, uh, living out uh, a sense of love, uh, eros, uh, and the power of those terms. The other reading we do at the same time is uh, a few pieces by this um, architect designer named Bill McDonough. And he says his primary design principle is, how do you love 
all the children of all species at all times. That's his design principle, whether he's doing architecture or designing a factory, whatever you're designing, a life, life's work. How do you love all the children of all species for all time? So what does your work look like? And what does your life's work look like if it's a manifestation of that love, that passion, that commitment, that creative desire to embody love forth in the world? Right. So if you can find work, make work, do your life's work in a way that does that, then yes, hmm. meaning found in or attributed to your work, the, the particular career path can be part of that. Yeah. But if you isolate that from these larger impulses, then no, work is not a place to find meaning devoid of this larger this larger commitment or this larger engagement with ongoing uh, questions and ideas about ultimate meaning or meaning. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let's try something different. Um, we've been delving into some pretty heavy topics. So I'm going to do a little rapid fire here and try to answer these questions in less than five words. <laughs> All right. Are you ready? Mm, we'll see. What kinds of things give you meaning? Asking questions, uh, engaging people in that. That's a lot more than five minutes. Eh. <laughs> five words. <laughs> So sorry, canceling the podcast. Um, what kind of things do you find most satisfying in your life and work? Asking questions. Okay, I'm a broken record. Um, <laughs> being out in the natural world, engaging in deep relationships, uh, uh, sparking uh, and sharing in projects that students are passionate about. When do you feel most connected to something larger than yourself? Again, I think when I'm out in the natural world or when I'm looking at the stars, the cosmos, right? Those those sort of almost inevitably, how, how do you not feel part of something larger? But also in the microcosms of deep relationship with family, with my partner, with my, again, students when we're in the thick of, it, of mm -hmm. something. What kind of things inspire you? What kinds of things inspire me? Great theater, great music, uh, great questions, good relationships, uh, lots of time in un trammeled natural spaces untrammeled natural spaces i'm writing that down i'm getting that <laughs> tattooed swimming in the ocean even here in the north atlantic even even here in northern new england i swim i swim i float i just love immersion in the deep salt water I mean, your bio on the bates webpage says that you can, quote, often be found foraging about uh, the woods for wild gourmet mushrooms. So can you tell us more about that little tidbit? Yeah. So that's, again, that's part of the sort of multi-sensory, right? So you can walk through the forest, but if you can actually eat the forest. <laughs> so even when I was a teenager, I was fascinated by the prospect of free for the taking of, you know, sort of in, engaging other senses when I was, uh, you know, out in the woods. I spent a lot of time when we, after my family moved to Maine, I spent a lot of time in the woods. So 
uh, I didn't start foraging wild mushrooms until I passed the age of 40. But I, I was making dandelion wine when I was 15. I was you know, making oh rose God. petal jelly when I was, you know, 16. I found a copy of Yule Gibbons' Stalking the Wild Asparagus on my oh, father's yeah. bookshelf. Was that, that, that's a, you see that? You, you can, can eat, eat a that. pine tree. That's yeah. right. Yeah. My dad yeah. always talks about that. Exactly. Yeah. So it, you know, my, my father had a bookshelf that was like full of science fiction and, and all kinds of interesting books. And this was one of them. And we lived in Maine now and I would bring things home and my family would eat them. So here I was, a, a teenager, a kid, putting food on the table for my family that I had foraged from the surrounding fields and woods. Uh, that was a deeply empowering and mm. energizing kind of experience. So, so I've continued to do that. I teach a course on food and the sacred and share the bounty of the local environment so that my students get to eat the forest, eat the fields of, of where we live, to smell it, to, to consume it. It's a kind of communion. It's mm. a kind of bringing into one's body. Um, one's body occupies a space and the space that one is in becomes part of one's very body. It's a, it's a deep interconnection with place that I find very compelling. Mm. So, And if you can saute that communion with some olive oil, garlic, maybe and a little sage, salt and pepper. Salt, pepper. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think just to wrap up, I mean, eating the forest, that's almost akin to literally leaving your mark on the world. I think in a, maybe in a less literal way, like what, what kind of mark or marks uh, would you like to leave in, in this world? You know, that's the kind of question that I feel like if you ask me on a different day, I'm going to come up with a different answer. Mm. But today's, today's answer is I'd like to just disappear. I'd like to be absorbed body and mind, soul, spirit into that larger cosmos. So mm -hmm. let the worms eat my body. Let it, let me become compost and let whatever insights or questions that have moved or excited students uh, and other people with whom I've been in relation throughout my life. Let those go blossom, die, mm. you know, do whatever they do in the world. And let me just disappear. Wonderful. Great. I love answer. that answer. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for so much. This is lovely. Your time and your thoughts and for offering these musings on the nature of questions and religion. And we're very happy and feel very lucky to have the opportunity to have uh, spoken with you today. Thank well, you, Cynthia. Thank you for yeah, the invitation so and thanks for the thoughtful questions. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to the Bates Digital Media Studio, the Multifaith Fellows, Multifaith Chaplain Brittany Longstorff, and Cynthia Baker for sharing her story with us. On a personal note, I'll be headed out on parental leave soon, so our next episode will likely be in September. Don't forget to go back and listen to our previous episodes while we're on break. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us next time. <laughs>